On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Chocolat listener polls, learn about director Zack Snyder, and preview Watchmen. Hello and welcome back to this Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. Welcome back to another prequel episode. We've got quite a bit to get into previewing Watchmen, among other things, so we'll get right to it with our patron shout-outs. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award-winning Hall of Famers, the all-time greats, and they are... Matilde is satisfied with the plan for the plan for TFIL merch. Steve from Arizona, Paul, Kat Insminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby says all I want for Valentine's Day is TFIL merch, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much. We appreciate you all. Very much, and hope you have a lovely Valentine's Day, however you do or don't celebrate. All right, let's see what people had to say about Chocola. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. So on Patreon, we had one vote for the movie and zero for the book. Mm -hmm. Matilde is satisfied with the plan for a plan for TFIL merch, said, liked the book, preferred the movie. The book is a nice folklore tale, phantasmagoric at times, kind of like Alphonse Dudet's Letters from My Windmill, but with a darker twist. I liked the exploration of generational trauma and the mother-daughter dynamic, and Armand is a delight in the book. My main issue is I didn't feel the story fit the genre. I think chocolate, I think something sensual, and I was expecting a story that would explore the senses versus the mind like the perfume and style, not themes, and I was pretty disappointed on that point. It seriously lacked on the food porn. The descriptions felt more like lists than evocative scenes. The characters are more symbols than actual persons. I felt like they were stuck in their roles, the dark man, the whimsical old lady, the witch, the woman in peril, and lacked dimension and subtlety. It didn't feel grounded in, my, in reality, and in my opinion, the story needs that to be effective. My second problem with the book is very much a me problem, but I have to share it. Joanne, pick a language and stick to it, please. Hmm. I couldn't stop reading French words in an English accent and vice versa. Incredibly annoying, very much a trying to make it fancy by peppering French terms everywhere move. She's a French teacher. She has no excuse. Translators exist for a reason. Hmm. I will jump in with I haven't read the book. I will say it can oftentimes be effective in some things. I can understand how it might be a problem for Matilde. I believe they are a native French speaker, from my memory, um, but speak English mm -hmm. obviously very well. Um, so at least a, a dual linguist. I don't know if you speak any other languages, Matilde. But so I can understand it being kind of annoying in that instance. Uh, that being said, I think it, for somebody who like me, who's a monolingual, if I was reading a book that is set in France, trying to you know, give a little bit more of kind of the atmosphere using f French words throughout more here and there or whatever. Um, I think, again, without knowing how it is used in the book, I could see that working for me to, to again, to kind of get my mind in the headspace mm -hmm. of, you know, the, the setting and everything. But I don't know. That would be my only like kind of. Um, it didn't bother me. Okay. But I also don't speak French. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm able to just like glaze over it. Yeah. 
Uh, Matilda went on to uh, list a few of her own odds and ends, um, saying, probably an unpopular opinion, but Johnny Depp didn't do it for me in this movie. Alfred Molina, on the other hand, <laughs> he plays tortured and repressed very well. You know what? To each their own. I, I <laughs> Not not my not my style not my not cup my, of tea not my slice of cake um, cup of hot chocolate <laughs> yeah but you know fair so enough it's good, something for everybody you know mm-hmm. um, Juliette Binoche is so cheerfully sexy in this movie it's almost as enticing as the chocolate to be fair everyone is doing a wonderful job in the movie they are I will agree yes. though Juliette Binoche, Binoche is like yeah entrancing in this film. I also loved the realism of the details that were added to the characters, Luke and his drawing, Caroline and Renaud being more complex, made all of them much more relatable and believable. Mm -hmm. I don't like Rue ending up with Josephine in the novel. I felt it diminished her liberation from Sergei slash Paul. That being said, even in the movie, I thought Rue wouldn't stick around and should continue his life. Yeah. Um, And finally... I agree with you. Josephine and Vienne have insane chemistry. I think they should have ended up together. It's painfully obvious. Let's be real. If this movie had been made today, they would have had the balls to go I there. think so. I mean, I, yeah. I feel like there's there's a pretty good chance, yeah, at least. They might have gone there. Yeah. And it, it, it's, again, I the movie is not, it, it feels like the movie is alluding. There's just the looks they share with each other are not like friend looks, I feel like. I don't know. It's. Yeah. Honestly, I would have been satisfied if the movie had just been more about like their friendship. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but whatever, I guess. <laughs> no, I, I yeah, I just I, like I said, I, they, there's some there's some layer there that is that is something other than platonic in the in the portrayals <laughs> in the film in my opinion. Uh, On Facebook, we had no votes, but we had a comment from Patty who said, I've only seen the movie, but this episode convinced me to go get the book like I need more books to read. Well, there you go. We've succeeded. (laughs) Convinced at least one person to read the book. On Twitter, we had one vote for the movie, five for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. Kelly Napier said, I'm not done reading yet. Stupid ice storm and me working extra hours derailed my reading time. And Kelly's in broadcast news. Yes, so. I believe that is correct. <laughs> I think she's a director, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know if you knew this, Kelly. I think I've mentioned this. Uh, I Well, both of us. Both but of us worked in I broadcast news. Specifically worked in broadcast news for like five years. Yeah, you much longer than yeah, I did. And, 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 and on like more involved in the production side. I was a director for a brief time. Um, did it did everything at different points, but was a director briefly before I switched over to the marketing department. But, um, but yeah, I remember those days of ice storms and snowstorms yeah. and elections and all that sort of stuff and, and just how crazy the schedule gets. And I, this was a fun little story. I lived, I moved after working at the new station for like a year or two, I moved within like two blocks of the state or I don't know. It was not that it, it was, was like a few it blocks. It was very close. It was like less than 10 blocks from the station. It was like a quarter mile walk or something like that. So I would get called in all the time when other if it was stormed or snowed and like people couldn't drive. I was like, I could just walk <laughs> to the station. So many a days I would It was actually really fun because I would wake up to go to the morning show at like two in the morning or whatever, because it started at 5 a.m. Um, or 430, I think was when it started. But uh, we would <laughs> I would uh, uh, I would just walk down the middle of our main uh, our main like downtown street because mm-hmm. our station is like literally downtown by the river like in the main downtown area old town area 
and I would just walk down the main thoroughfare at like three in the morning with snow everywhere and felt like I was in an apocalypse like movie. Like I was like, I am legend. There's just like nothing. I'm just like walking down the middle of Broadway. Anyways. Uh, so Kelly said, I'm not done reading yet, but I'm still picking it over the movie. I think this book versus movie comparison is the perfect example of the nuance given to character study that you can do in a book versus a movie. I loved the way the personalities of the characters are revealed in the book. That's just harder to do in the medium of a movie. My mom also votes for the book. She said when I told her this is what y'all were covering, I loved the book. The movie, not as good. Oh. I also liked the device in the book where it takes place during the 40 days of Lent. It lends itself nicely to the thought that Vienne and Anouk are transient beings, only around for a season, then gone. I will say, that's also the case in the movie, right? Um, or does it, I guess it goes it, beyond it's, Lent? It's during Lent. Like, the, the chocolate festival at the end is on Easter Sunday. Yeah. Um, and it's the on movie, Lent when they arrive. Well, the Lent movie when... doesn't specify at what point in the year they arrive it says I, that they arrive like around the beginning of lent i could have swore because at one point i swear he was like a lent starts tomorrow oh i like don't at the remember beginning of the movie i could have swore at the specific. beginning of the movie that they the, were like lent it starts tomorrow the book, like very specifically they arrive on mardi gras oh, on fat tuesday okay. i think the movie could have easily accomplished something very similar by having them arrive on Ash Wednesday, mm. and that's a really easy visual cue, yeah, and everybody, everybody can have the, ashes, yeah, on, their ashes on their forehead. Yeah. Anyway, um, so thank you, Kelly. Mm -hmm. uh, and Shelby's in her capybara era said, didn't read or watch, but you convinced me to put the book on my very long list of books to read. Another person. We love Almost that. the exact same comment as Pat's. <laughs> On Instagram, we had five votes for the movie and three for the book. Anal Fracture 42 yep. said, I couldn't read the book, but also didn't particularly like the movie. So, yeah, no strong opinions here. However, I wanted to thank you for the drive episode. I listened to it while getting my wisdom teeth removed, and it made the whole procedure a lot more comfortable. Were you awake? <laughs> It seems to imply. I think it is. Some people, depending on the, the situation, they, they can remove yeah. them without putting you under. But yeah, when I got my wisdom teeth removed in like senior year of high school or junior year of high school, I got knocked out. Like I, they put me under yeah. and I woke up with no more with four less teeth in my head. When I, I still have all my wisdom teeth. Because I'm a horrible gremlin monster. <laughs> they just, the dentist did not decide, just decided you didn't need them out. Not everybody needs them out. Yeah, but I have more teeth than a lot of adults, which makes me feel okay. like some kind of I see. monstrous being. I see. But uh, I like it. But we're glad that uh, the, that episode could help. It almost seems, I couldn't tell if that was a good or a bad thing. <laughs> like, your, your episode made getting my wisdom teeth removed more comfortable. Almost implies, like, because the episode was so bad. That, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I know. It I doesn't. don't think so. But I think you could read it that way. That, like, the episode was <laughs> such a nightmare that the, I, I didn't even care about the teeth thing anymore. Like, in comparison, <laughs> the teeth thing was fine. <laughs> I know that's not what they're saying, but... <laughs> And we had one other comment on Instagram from Rissi DeVita, who said, The movie was magical. Her romantic costumes, the fairy tale instrumentals, and the jazz music, the beautiful settings and scenery. I fell in love with this movie from the first note. Mm. Full disclosure, I didn't even know this was based on a book. 
Also, I started following this page because I saw you were discussing Amazing. Chocolat. Well, welcome. Um, uh, <laughs> if you're listening to the follow-up prequel episode, Reese uh, the Diva. Or, or I don't. Yeah, I don't actually know how to pronounce. Or where I don't know where the divides are yeah, supposed to be. Yeah, I'm not sure where the name. divides are. Because <laughs> it's um, not. There's and no I, I went and looked at their profile, and their username was not the name that they had ah, in their like okay. description. So I'm still so not sure. So we're not sure. But. Um, I, so, I, but I hope you uh, stick yeah, around, still be even though and keep enjoying. Even we though have we're, a huge... <laughs> we're not discussing chocolate yeah. anymore. We have a huge back catalog of episodes. You know, 100 and some 40 or something at this i can't remember what number we're on now but something yeah, like 100 and something um, yeah so we got a ton and it's like 140 ish roughly um so yeah we got a huge back catalog go check them out uh and then yeah hopefully you stick around but thanks for thanks for listening and uh, we had no feedback on goodreads this time mm-hmm. um so our listener polls winner was the book by a hair with eight votes to the movie seven, wow. um, plus our, our one listener who couldn't decide. That was pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. All right. Now we're going to learn a little bit about uh, a very controversial filmmaker, <laughs> Mr. Zack Snyder. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. I know, and I have his name misspelled like all over this document. Isn't it? It's, it's a <laughs> it's, weird. It's S N Y, and I have the uh, oh. the Y and the N transposed oh. in like half of these. Okay, well then I'm gonna have to double check my that's, social okay, media. That's weird because that's not okay. You just like mistyped it. Yeah, not, I just mistyped it. Not like thought it was spelled a different no. way. Okay. <laughs> oh, so Zack Snyder is an American film director, producer, screenwriter, and cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was raised in Connecticut and grew up a comic book and horror film enthusiast. I don't buy that. I don't think he was a comic <laughs> book don't, fan. You don't buy I think that. he's fa- I think he's a liar. He was a fake comic no. book fan. He's very clearly a gigantic comic <laughs> book fan. Uh, After high school, he studied painting at Heatherly School of Fine Art in England and then attended Art Center College of Design in California, graduating with a BFA in film. Uh, Snyder made his feature film debut with the remake of the 1978 horror film Dawn of the Dead in 2004. Which I've heard is actually not a terrible remake. I've never seen either, so I could not say. Uh, it's not, again, I've heard people say it's not as good as the original one, but it's not like a terrible remake mm-hmm. from what I've heard. Um, followed by box office hit 300 in 2006, yeah. um, and then Watchmen in 2009. His animation debut was Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul in 2010. I didn't know he did that that either. I saw that on Wikipedia and I was like, what? That's wild. (laughs) Um, And then he followed that with a non-adaptation, Sucker Punch, in 2011, which he also produced and co-wrote. Which I've seen very interesting mixed opinions on Yeah, a very, very divisive film, Sucker Punch. As most of his films are, to be honest. Uh, he directed 2013's Man of Steel, mm-hmm. Superman reboot, and the kickoff of the DC Cinematic Universe. That same year, it was also announced that he would be directing 2016's Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Yep. Following that, he directed 2017's Justice League, although he eventually exited the project due to the death of his daughter and Joss Whedon took over. Mm -hmm. Snyder retained sole credit as director of that film. Yep. (laughs) 
I think I found the nicest way possible to talk about the next thing. Um, there was a divisive reaction to the theatrical cut of the film, no. with many flan- fans blaming Wheaton for what they felt was incohesion compared to previous films in the series. This led to an online campaign calling to, quote, release the Snyder Cut. Snyder's version eventually was released on HBO Max in 2021, although it was better received than the theatrical cut. The 2017 version is still considered the official canon within the DC Cinematic Universe. We actually do have a review of Justice League. Yeah. In a very early episode very, that I believe was early. not a patron, but it was uh, early on before we started our Patreon, we were doing some generic movie We would reviews. release a, like a, a review episode every now and then. Yeah, well, and it, before theme. we started doing learning things, too, we would occasionally That's have right. a segment in the prequels That's where right. we just chit-chatted about, about something we had watched. Yeah. So we do have a review of Justice League out there. Uh, we never watched the director's cut, the Snyder cut on HBO Max because I just wasn't. I don't care. Oh, yeah, I, I don't care either. Yeah, I just was never interested. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, Man of Steel was meh for me. Uh, okay, like better than the rest of the most of the other DC, or at least all of the others that like. It's better than Batman versus Superman, which is terrible, arguably the worst. I think I remember thinking Justice League was better than Batman versus Superman, but that was a very low bar. I I remember thinking that they were both kind of oh yes yes i agree i i remember i think i gave like justice league like a d plus or a c minus and batman vs superman like a an f or something so like <laughs> you know very faint praise and i think i would give man of steel from my memory i only saw it once when it came out you know like a a, a c minus or like a c or something like i none of these are good movies in my opinion um although i there are people that like them a lot for very interesting reasons uh, our one of my best friends sam is a huge fan of all of them. Yeah. Um, and it's, he's a big comic book guy. He knows all the comic books really well. He's read them all. He loves them. And his, his big thing that he loves is that Snyder is very committed to mm-hmm. translating the comic book onto the screen in a way that is very faithful. E- even if not every story element is very faithful visually, it's like a very faithful adaptation, which we'll get to, but. Uh, in regard to film style, Snyder often uses slow motion, particularly the technique of speed ramping in and out of fight scenes in his films, um, differing from other directors who make multiple cuts and close ups during a fight. Mm-hmm. To some extent, um, yeah, he does that a lot. Uh, I mean, obviously, very famously, 300 was kind of the big yeah. kickoff of the speed ramping thing. And then he c- kept doing it and everything. But yeah. I mean, if it works, it works, I guess. It works really well in 300. (laughs) Uh, I don't know how well it works in everything else he's done since then. And he doesn't use it as much, from my memory, in, like, some of the other Justice League stuff that he as he did in 300. It's constant in 300. Mm -hmm. Um, But in 300, it was very novel, and it also sort of fit the the whole aesthetic of what was going on. And anyways. Um. I think I found a nice way to say this, too. (laughs) Snyder has been described as one of the most polarizing directors of modern cinema. In 2017, David Ehrlich of IndieWire wrote that Snyder's, quote, name alone is enough to launch a thousand angry tweets, and the most passionate writing about his work is exclusively found in the comment sections of websites like this one. Snyder's critics really seem to hate him, and Snyder's fans really seem to hate his critics. Is Snyder a master or a hack? A misunderstood mythmaker or a meathead with a movie camera? 
Uh, so we're not going to answer that question here. <laughs> I will say my vibe on the whole thing is Zack Snyder seems like a very talented visual filmmaker at, at times mm-hmm. um, and is a very passionate filmmaker in a way that I am envious of <laughs> because he's very clearly like obsessed with all the stuff he works on. Um I don't think he's a very good storyteller, in my opinion. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that he kind of like is involved in, like the writing and the directing, or and and then most of the films he doesn't actually write. But like just the way the way he tells stories through his direction, I don't think is super effective all the time. And I and I think he does sacrifice a um. Uh, narrative cohesion and uh, sort of thematic cohesion for the sake of the aesthetic, mm-hmm. which I can appreciate to some extent, but it is, I, I don't think he's, I, again, I, th- I think it, it kind of comes down to where I don't, he's not, I don't think he's a misunderstood myth maker. I think there's a little bit of that. I also don't think he's a meathead. I don't think he's like a complete clown who has no idea. You know, he's not, Michael Bay like to me like the meathead with a camera thing is Michael Bay like that applies most to somebody like Michael Bay to me and because I also think that Michael Bay and I don't know I always just get the vibe that Michael Bay is like a much like more like cynical like not Mm -hmm. good person whereas Zack Snyder has always struck me as a particularly not as like a fairly like introspective and, and reasonable like nice guy who like really likes the stuff he makes and isn't just like, yeah. I don't know. And, and yeah, uh, but that being said, I don't think he's like an incredible director. <laughs> I think he's just I mean, like, I, I have not seen a ton of his films. I've seen, we saw Batman versus Superman and justice league and I've seen sucker punch. I've not seen sucker punch, um, but I've seen 300. I, I've seen Watchmen. I would like to rewatch sucker punch at some point because I watched it maybe like 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I had kind of mixed feelings about it and I'm not sure I was able to like fully grasp there's everything lot, yeah, that was going, going on. There's a lot going on in that movie from what I've heard. So I would like to revisit it at I some would like point. to see it, yeah. Um, but like to what you had to say about like sacrificing narrative and thematic cohesion and substance in deference to like the aesthetic or yeah. like style. Yeah. I feel like that works better in stories that are self-contained than it does in like sprawling epics yeah which might be where some of the issues with the dc movies come in yeah yeah it's interesting i also think he's you know because it's also there's an interesting element that i i think i don't think he's i think he's a very surface level like at least the vibe i get is he feels like a fairly surface level um thematic filmmaker like there's Mm -hmm. not that there's no imagery or any like there's tons of imagery and stuff in his movies but it's all very surface level and i don't think he thinks very deeply about like what a lot of his movies are saying necessarily and that was where i struggled with sucker punch which is why i'd like to revisit it because i was like i I remember watching it and being like i feel like this is saying something but i could not tell you what yeah and i i because i I think it is mixed but also like you know because like I was a huge fan of 300 when it came out and I haven't watched it recently, but I've seen it probably five or six times over the years. Um, I don't remember the last time I watched it, but that movie is like deeply fascistic. Mm-hmm. But I, if you had to ask me, did Zack Snyder want to make a fascist sympathizing movie? I, he would, I think he would be appalled at that idea. Like, I don't yeah. think 
I don't think he's like an incredibly like progressive filmmaker necessarily, or like you know, I don't think he's out going out of his way to like, um, you know, I th I think he likes things that are cool. I think he's like really yeah. into things that are cool and like sees <laughs> some of the layers that are beneath that, but doesn't think too. Because like you go back and watch Three Hundred now, like that movie is. That movie's about a bunch of ripped white dudes murdering a bunch of brown people who are like invading their land and like um and they're all like perverts and you know like sex pests and like criminal like the, yeah. the, the bad guys and like Xerxes is like cl clearly queer coded and it's like it's all very <laughs> so you, so you think he doesn't really think about I, it at least maybe not back to be fair that was two that you know that's 15 years ago right. I'm not saying you know or whatever whatever year that came out um I'm not saying that he hasn't thought about it since then. And I, and I do think he does think about that stuff to at least some extent, but I don't know if he always connects the dots on what it is his movies mm -hmm. are saying. Like, I think he, he sees like one layer and he's like, you know, cause obviously he, he very like, and again, it's, it's not subtle. He very on the nose in, in the DC universe movies presents the, the Superman as Jesus kind of imagery a lot. Yes. Like we get a lot of that throughout, um, the the DC movies and stuff like that, among other things, and so again, it's not like he's oblivious to like symbolism and and the imagery in his movies and stuff like that. I don't think, um, but yeah, I also don't know if he just thinks that deeply about. Mm -hmm. I think he really just likes movies that look cool, and he knows how to make cool looking movies for the most part. Like generally speaking, not everything all the time, but he has. I mean, I, you, I again say what you want about three hundred. There are some just really cool stuff in that movie. Yeah. And now, to be fair, he's literally just ripping it off the comic book page, but he is ripping it off the, the cool stuff from the comic book pages and putting it in the movie. Um, and that's one of the things that Alex really, really struck me, which we'll get in here to, in just a second. Talking about Watchmen is having seen Watchmen before reading it. I only saw it once when it came out in theaters, and I remember almost nothing about the movie. But reading it now. I'm like I'm like halfway through it currently, and I'm like, yeah. oh, the, so many of these moments are just he just ripped like them directly. right out of the comic book and literally just put this like this image on the screen, mm -hmm. like identical, um, in, in a way that is you know, again, it's so I don't know. He's an interesting filmmaker, and I I think he doesn't deserve the hate he gets, but I he's probably which is true of most things, but he's probably falls somewhere in that middle ground of like. He, he doesn't deserve the hate that a lot of people give him. That being said, his movies, a lot of the more recent ones have not been very good. And maybe all of them, I don't know, arguably. Um, I'm, I'm holding out a little bit of... Um, I think this one, it's, I, from everything I remember from what people said, this is probably his best movie, like, mm -hmm. overall. But I don't, think he's, I don't think he's as bad as a filmmaker as some people would like to argue that he is on the internet. But I also don't think he's... But I, I, it's funny because that was I thought this person that the Ehrlich guy made a really interesting point. Um, they worded this this line very specifically. Uh, Snyder critics really seem to hate him and Snyder fans really seem to hate his critics, not love his movies, yeah. hate his critics, which is a thing that I think is very true. It, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. And I, I think they do like his movies, at least to some extent. But even the most adamant Snyder verse, you know, DC Snyder verse supporters that i've seen maybe not the most because there are some crazy people on twitter but like in in person the people that i've talked to who who defend the snyder you know snyder verse dc stuff still admit like yeah I mean, they're not great like there's like you know there's a lot of things in the movies that are like not very good and like yeah this doesn't really make blah 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 like it doesn't really connect blah, blah, blah. but they just really like overall like mm -hmm. the fact that he is very committed 
to taking some of their most beloved comics and putting them on the screen. It's like a, it's like a, they love the idea of what he's doing. I think more than what he actually does is kind of what it feels like sometimes. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. That's, I think that's a fair assessment, which is interesting. He's yeah. Again, I think he's a very interesting filmmaker um, it, from that regard because yeah, he is very uh, arguably. Yeah. The most polarizing modern director who who isn't embroiled in some sort of weird controversy you know like yeah who doesn't have like you know he's not not like roman polanski or something right. like that a different kind of polarizing. yeah a different kind of <laughs> polarizing but yeah uh you know barring those kind of people i think he definitely is up there amongst the and especially in like just general audience polarizing because mm -hmm. i'm sure there are more polarizing directors among like critics or something like sure. you know like film yeah. snobs and stuff i'm sure they have but like among mass general population audiences I, he's got to be the most polarizing which is yeah it's really interesting all right speaking of uh arguably maybe his best movie uh, we'll see it's been a while since i've seen it let's go ahead and talk about the comic book it was based on watchmen watchmen one of us died tonight. Somebody knows why. Somebody knows. Harry had been working for the government. Maybe it was a political killing. Maybe someone's picking off costumed heroes. John thinks that there's gonna be a nuclear war. What if that's why someone wants us out of the way? So we can't do anything to stop it. An attack on one is an attack on all of us. Watchmen are over. What do you suggest we do about it? Retribution. Watchmen is a maxi-series comic book published in 1986 and 1987 in monthly installments before it was collected into a single volume. 12 monthly installments. It was written by Alan Moore, who's known for uh, Batman the Killing Joke, V for Vendetta, From Hell, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Swamp Thing, and many more. Alan Moore's arguably the one of him and Frank Miller, <laughs> like yeah. the two biggest names in uh, comic books in the last hundred years, or, you know, ever, arguably. They're up there for sure. And animated, or sorry, not animated, illustrated by Dave Gibbons, uh, who's known primarily for this, but also Green Lantern uh, and uh, Superman for the man, or it's called For the Man Who Has Everything, but it's a Superman story. Mm. Uh, and among other things as well, but those are his other kind of biggest things. When discussing where the idea for Watchmen came from, Alan Moore said, quote, I suppose I was just thinking, that'd be a good way to start a comic book have a famous superhero found dead. Uh, and so as the mystery unraveled, we would be led deeper and deeper into the real heart of this superhero's world and show a reality that was very different to the general public image of the superhero. Um, so this is the, famously, this is the beginning of the deconstruction of a super, like what, a, mm -hmm. you know, kind of this is, this is the boy, the, I mean, people know this. Watchmen is the boys before the boys was a, yeah. it, basically to some extent. It's like, let's take, superheroes yeah, the, the deconstruction of the myth yeah and deconstruct them and kind of tear them down and it's also very funny to me it actually makes it very interesting that Zack snyder is the person directing this because it it i don't know this is interesting because he has such a deep love for all of these superheroes to be mm -hmm. the person helming which it maybe maybe it works in its own way but being the person helming the film 
that is like a breakdown and deconstruction of the whole mythos of superheroes and stuff like that when he is like the world's biggest Superman fan. It's just a very interesting dynamic, I think. Um, But potentially it could work. We'll see when we watch it. So initially Moore uh, used this premise that he came up with and and made a proposal to sell to um, uh, DC, I believe. But he wanted to use pre-existing DC characters that they had just got from some other comic. They purchased some characters from some other smaller, smaller comic book company or whatever. And he wanted to use this uh, idea he came up with with pre-existing characters. And the original title for this like treatment that he was going to send to uh, DC uh, that he sent to the DC's managing editor, G- Dick Giordano, was originally called Who Killed the Peacemaker? Mm-hmm. Peacemaker being a comic or a comic book character that people are aware of now because of Suicide Squad and the Peacemaker show. But they were like, uh, this is cool, but can we not use characters that we already, you know, because we don't <laughs> want to kill off these characters or do weird yeah. things with them. We like the idea, but can we do it with like original characters? Um and Moore said, quote, DC realized their expensive, expensive characters would end up either dead or dysfunctional, end quote. So instead, uh, Giordano, again, the DC managing editor, persuaded Moore to continue the, the idea with new characters. And Moore was like, I don't know if that's going to work. He didn't think original characters would, would provide the emotional resonance that uh, mm-hmm. resonance that like the that characters that the that readers already had an attachment to he didn't think it would work with brand new characters but he would eventually change his mind and said of uh quote eventually i realized that if i wrote the substitute characters well enough so that they seemed familiar in certain ways certain aspects of them brought back a kind of generic superhero resonance or familiarity to the reader then it might work so he basically was like i'll just write archetypes kind of i i think that's that's a fair tactic like because a lot of superheroes are playing on those archetypes yeah that come to us through mythology and and the very bowels of time and storytelling yes absolutely so um dave gibbons the artist uh for watchmen had collaborated with more on previous projects and he recalled quote he must have heard on the grapevine. I must have heard on the grapevine that he was doing a treatment for a new miniseries. So I rang him up saying that I'd like to be involved with whatever he was doing, and then Moore sent him the outline. And after some brief discussion, the the edit, DC's editor and Moore and Gibbons spent a day together creating the characters and outlining the story. And they were particularly inspired, apparently, by a Mad parody, like Mad Magazine parody of Superman called Super Duper Man. Uh, but instead of kind of doing the, the that version, which is like very silly and and humorous, mm-hmm. they wanted to take it in a very like deadly serious way, um, where everything was very dramatic and treated completely, you know, um, seriously as opposed to the campy comedic style of Super Duper Man. Uh, and Moore said that his intention initially was to create quote a superhero Moby Dick, something that had the sort of weight, that sort of density. Um, which so far from my reading, he has achieved because it is it is heavy. <laughs> let me tell you. Then Moore came up with the character names and descriptions, but completely left how they looked up to Gibbons. And apparently Gibbons didn't do, like sit down and like plan out and design his characters. He just kind of did it willy nilly over the course of a few weeks, kind of just doing sketches. Um, and he also very specifically designed them to make them easy to draw. Uh, and he said Rorschach is his favorite to draw because, quote, you just have to draw a hat. If you can draw a hat, then you've drawn Rorschach. You just draw kind of a shape for his face and then put some black blobs on it and you're done. (laughs) Which I don't know. (laughs) It was interesting because I was like, 
um, I mean, I guess it is easier than drawing other people's faces, but he is an incredibly talented artist. When you're looking yeah. at this, it's like, how hard is it for you to draw anything? Because, like, I would do that because I'm a bad artist. Like, I would be a terrible <laughs> artist. Like, oh, man, what a, what a relief. I can just draw a simple thing. But, like, all of his stuff in this is so detailed and so yeah. intricate and so incredible that it's just like, I don't, I mean, I, okay, I guess I get it, but... <laughs> feel like you didn't really need to take a shortcut there um but it is a, a very uh unique and interesting character design so um when writing the script for the first is first issue more said he realized quote i only had enough plot for six issues and we were contracted for 12 uh, his solution for this was to alternate issues that dealt with the actual plot that he had outlined with origin issues for the characters so mm. you kind of go back and forth between what is happening in the story and the backstory for the actual characters that are involved in the story and Moore would apparently write very detailed scripts for Gibbons to work from. And uh, Gibbons recalled that, quote, the script for the first issue of Watchmen was, I think, 101 pages of typescript, single spaced Shoot. with no gaps between the individual panel descriptions or even between the pages. <laughs> That is psychopath <laughs> writing. It's just like this manifesto all like, yeah. He said upon receiving the scripts that he would number each page in case he dropped them. Uh, because if I dropped them on the floor, it would take me two days to put them back together in the right oh, order. <laughs> so he would number them immediately because it was just impossible to keep keep everything straight. Uh, apparently, Moore uh, would occasionally contact Neil Gaiman for uh, answers for research questions and for quotes to include in the issues. Every every section, every issue mm -hmm. uh, ends with what, like a quote mm -hmm. from somebody or something. And it's also like involved or incorporated in the, the name of the issue. Um, and apparently uh, Neil Gaiman was uh, involved in a lot of that. And Neil Gaiman actually gets a special thanks at the beginning. I noticed that when I opened the first page, it says like special thanks. And there's like three people and Neil Gaiman was one of them, which I thought was interesting. So Alan Moore was uh, committed to stay ahead of schedule on this. He did not want to fall behind uh, and, and have delays. Uh, but unfortunately, there were delays nonetheless. And Gibbons has said that the major contributing factor to that was that Moore would send him the script eventually like two or three pages at a time. Yeah. He said he would sit that he would literally call him on the phone and beg him to send him more of the script so that he could draw it. Uh, and as they began to hit deadlines, apparently Moore would hire a taxi driver to drive the 50 miles between him and Gibbons's house or whatever and de hand deliver the script to gibbons uh and on later issues he even had his wife and son draw panel uh grids on pages to help him save time because they were so behind schedule so uh the thing that's interesting that i had not heard near the end of the project uh more realized that the story actually uh kind of resembled a an outer limits television episode which is similar to like twilight zone mm -hmm. called the architects of fear and apparently Moore and Wine, who was an editor with DC, argued over changing the ending because it was so similar to the show or to that episode of the show. And when Moore refused uh, to change it, Wine quit the company oh. <laughs> or quit, quit working on the book, rather, uh, and explained, quote, I kept telling him, be more original, Alan. You've got the capability. Do something different, not something that's already been done. And he didn't seem to care enough to do that, end quote. Uh, and apparently in the final episode or the final issue of the series, Moore acknowledged the Outer Limits episode by referencing it. And huh. he like, by the time he got to the end, he was like, I'll just put in a reference to the episode <laughs> instead of changing my ending. <laughs> I'll, I'll just cite my sources. Yeah, right. I'll just cite my sources <laughs> instead of changing it. <laughs> 
Um, so uh, structurally, apparently, certain aspects, and I. So just to be very clear, I am not a comic book reader. I have read maybe a dozen comic books in my entire life, uh, mm-hmm. and I couldn't even tell you what. A couple episodes of Deadpool, or not episodes, issues of Deadpool, a few random, um, a, a couple of the early issues of Walking Dead, or like I think I read like the first. Because they collect those in like seasons, not yeah, seasons, like volumes. Like volumes. I read the maybe the first one or two volumes of Walking Dead, and then I've read all of up until what I think it's coming out soon um, of Saga. Yeah. Um. So that's like the extent of my experience reading or you know engaging with actual comics uh, or graphic novels, um, unless you count reading a ton of Calvin and Hobbes when I was a kid. <laughs> that's a little <laughs> bit different, which I did. I read it. We had like every collection of Calvin and Hobbes and I read all of them when I was little. But anyway, so uh, apparently structurally there are aspects of Watchmen that are very different from the norm in comic books at the time in the 80s. And, and that in particular, that being the panel layout and the coloring. So instead of panels of various sizes, which was common, uh, Gibbons decided to divide each Gibbons and more decided to divide each page into a nine panel grid. Um, and they really liked this system because of its, according to Gibbons, its authority is what he said and is what he described it as. And more also like more specifically like the nine panel grid because it gave him quote a level of control over the storytelling that he hadn't had previously. And then Gibbons said, quote, there was this element of the pacing and visual impact that he could now predict and use to dramatic effect. Which I think is interesting. It makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense if you know which the the book doesn't actually follow exactly the nine panel grid all the time. Some of them are they take the nine panel grid and, and turn it into one panel or they take two of the panels like so there is still within the nine panel grid thing sometimes they'll combine mm-hmm. like the middle set it'll be like three single panels then one big one in the middle and then three at the bottom or whatever they they do mix it up still but they follow the general outline of that and it definitely gives you a very consistent you know grid or you know kind of framework to design your story and reveal around which is always a thing i found fascinating about comics even though i mm-hmm. don't really read them is the way they you know you figure out like reveals of like turning like where story beats fall in the actual physical pages and like so you turn a page and you get like this big moment you know like and like the actual layout and structure of comics i've always found very fascinating again even as a person who doesn't really read them so the title of the series watchmen refers to the question quote who will watch the watchmen themselves which was famously posed by roman satirist juvenile uh, and more claimed apparently to be unaware of this phrase's origins. <laughs> Just he can't. Well, I, I think he probably heard it somewhere and was like, who yeah. watches the Watchmen? Uh, but apparently didn't know that it came from a Roman satirist named Juvenile. There was a sequel to Watchmen published in 2016 called Doomsday Clock. It sounds complicated to me. I don't know exactly how direct of a sequel it is, but it's part of the DC Rebirth line of comics. And it was not written by Alan Moore. Uh, it was actually written by Jeff Johns, another big name in Mm -hmm. comics that i've heard of him (laughs) so um if i've heard of you and you're a comic book writer you're you're a big name you've made it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah uh and then the 2019 hbo miniseries is also kind of a sequel uh so damon lindelof was the showrunner on that and he described it as a remix 
Uh, it's narratively a sequel, but it also introduces a new set of characters and a story that he felt made the work unique enough without being a full reboot of the comic series. <laughs> it's interesting. It I is, didn't know that was. A, I thought it was just like an adaptation. No, it is not a direct. It is. It is like a sequel, kind huh. of. Like none of the characters are the same. Well, there, I don't want to say none. They there may be some. I don't know exactly how it all works, but because we have not watched that, so I don't no. know. I do want to watch it, but I wanted to wait until because I've heard it's fantastic. But I wanted to wait until we did this or yeah. eventually, yeah. Uh, so I, I had a better point of reference for it. Um, so when Watchmen was released, and it received tons of praise, uh, Time Magazine, which noted that the series was quote by common ascent the best of its breed uh, of the new waves of comics published at the time, praised Watchmen as quote a superlative feat of imagination combining sci-fi, political satire, knowing evocations of comics past, and bold reworkings of current graphic formats into a dystopian mystery novel. Uh, so yeah, very very high praise from lots of people. It won the 1988 Hugo Award in the other forms category, which I guess is I, they probably have a, a graphic novel category now. This I would is, think so, or something like that. But yeah. Uh, but according to Dave Gibbons, the artist uh, Alan Moore had his uh, Hugo Award placed upside down in his garden and used it as a bird bath. Oh God! Uh, supposedly, <laughs> I this is what Dave Gibbons said. Um. It went on to become one of the best-selling graphic novels ever published. Uh, it's the only graphic novel to appear on Time's uh, 2005 All-Time 100 Greatest Novels list. Um, it was also uh, that was also where Time critic Lev Grossman described the story as quote a heart-pounding, heartbreaking read and a watershed in the evolution of a young medium. Uh, I guess young, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I mean, compared thirties, but compared to compared to other mediums, though, like compared to the novel or the short story, it's it's a young medium. Yeah, Yeah, even compared to film, it's you know, at least at least at least a little little younger younger. than film. Yeah, Yeah. at least like thirty or forty years or something, twenty or thirty years, whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, did, uh, in 2008, Entertainment Weekly placed Watchmen at number 13 on its list of the best 50 novels printed in the last 25 years, describing it as, quote, the greatest superhero story ever told and proof that comics are capable of smart, emotionally resonant narratives worthy of the label literature. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then finally, my favorite fun fact that I've maybe ever found. I'm not joking. I'm- I had no idea about this. This is incredible. I screamed on the inside when I read this. (laughs) Watchmen was one of the two comic books alongside Batman The Dark Knight Returns, which is the Frank Miller, um, one of the Frank Miller ones, I believe, um, that inspired designee Vincent Conner when he created Comic Sans. (laughs) (laughs) So you have Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns to thank for Comic Sans. Which is amazing. It's an amazing comic book, but God, at what cost? <laughs> what that, that, at that what rot? cost? <laughs> yes, uh, incredible. I love that so much. I was like, that's that's fantastic. I I had no idea, and I I just it's it's amazing. I would like to know more about like what specifically did what what made him think? Aha. I will design the world's worst Bond. I think, well, so he he clearly is just, because if you look at Comic Sans, it just kind of looks like the font in comic books. Like, yeah, get, that's yeah. why it's called Comic Sans. Fair enough. Um, and, it, and, and, and specifically, if you read Watchmen, it, yeah, it, it, it's, I will say that Comic Sans is a much worse font than the font in Watchmen. <laughs> like, it is not, 
the 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 font in Watchmen also the font in Watchmen changes based on mm-hmm. characters a lot so it's not like it's not identical the whole time um but kind of the general font that you get when people are talking and and they're in the you know the description whatever the I'm sure those have a name in comics that I don't know the like the bubbles and stuff oh yeah I think they do but I don't know it off the top of my head anyways but it, yeah so it's it, you can tell that it's like Comic Sans was inspired by it, but his Comic Sans is definitely a, a a less interesting version of the the font that is used throughout <laughs> Watchmen. Uh, so yeah, all right, that's it for the book. It's time now to learn a little bit more about Watchmen, the film. We can save this world. save the world i no longer have any stake in do it for me Watchmen is a 2009 American superhero thriller film uh, based on the 1986 to 1987 DC Comics limited series, as you just discussed. The film has a 7.6 on IMDb, 65% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 56 on Metacritic. This property had a very long road getting to the big screen. I was going through the Wikipedia page um, and looking at all of the directors and writers who at one point were attached to this. Oh, yeah. And I, it, there's nobody that's, that's like so crazy that you're like, whoa, why that person? But like, we could have ended up with some very interesting variations <clears throat> on this film, yeah. I think. Um, so. Uh, Producers Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver first acquired the film rights in 1986 um, for 20th Century Fox. Um, Author Alan Moore declined to write a script, um, so they brought in Sam Hamm. What a name. uh, Yeah, um, whose best known screenwriting credit is probably for Tim Burton's Batman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, However, the project never got off the ground, uh, and in 1991, Fox put it into turnaround and moved it. It was moved to Warner Brothers. Um, where Terry, um, is it, is it Gilliam or Gilliam? It's Gilliam. Terry Gilliam, um, of Monty Python fame was attached to direct, but the team was unable to raise the necessary budget. Um, Gilliam eventually left watch it, describing Watchmen as quote, unfilmable. Um, and Warner brothers dropped the project. I mean, I could see why he say it would say it's unfilmable. I don't think it's unfilmable, but I could see why you might, there are definitely parts of it that feel unfilmable. Big parts of it. I'm like, this is very filmable, but there are definitely sections of it where I'm like, I don't have any idea how you would film this, but yeah. Um, in 2001, uh, Gordon partnered with producer Lloyd Levin, and they took the project to Universal Studios, hiring David Hayter, who wrote the first X-Men movie. 
to write the script. Also, to be fair to Terry Gilliam, he was saying that in 1991, correct? Uh, yeah. CG, yeah. not the the, yeah. the the powerhouse that it was. Right. No, that's very fair. <laughs> when Zack Snyder made this movie, so yeah. Um. So they hired uh, David Hayter, who wrote the first X Men movie, to do a script. Um. But they ended up leaving Universal due to creative differences. They tried again at Revolution Studios, but the project fell apart there as well. The project then moved to Paramount Pictures, where it never got off the ground, but it did run through three different directors. Michael Bay. Oh, that would have been a nightmare. <laughs> like, just the worst. <laughs> Can't, I, that's insane to me. Um, Darren Aronofsky. That, that could have worked, sure. And Paul Greengrass, yeah. uh, probably best known for directing a handful of Bourne sequels. Yeah. I could see Paul Greengrass being okay-ish. Darren Aronofsky makes a lot of sense to mm -hmm. me. In 2005, the project once again ended up at Warner Brothers. While there, Tim Burton expressed an interest in directing. I don't think that would have worked. <laughs> I'm going to be real worked. honest. I don't Tim think Burton's tonally, Watchmen. <laughs> I, I don't think that would have worked at all. Um, but he ultimately turned it down. However, the studio was impressed with 300, and they approached Snyder to direct um, and brought in Alex uh, Say, I think, mm -hmm. um, to adapt the script. And he returned the setting to its Cold War origins, um, whereas Hater's script had moved the setting to modern times. Oh, weird. That would be weird. Yeah, that would be. I would time. be. Because the, the Cold War is, is so yeah. pivotal to, like, the whole everything that is mm -hmm. going on <laughs> in the, again halfway through it right now but it seems so integral to like the entire dna of the story that if you didn't have it set during the cold war it would be very <laughs> tough to not saying you couldn't move it it would just be very tough yeah um so because the film rights had changed hands so many times uh, warner brothers actually had to cut deals with both paramount and fox hmm. um with paramount getting the rights for international distribution of watchmen and 25 percent of the film's ownership and fox received an upfront payment and a percentage of the worldwide gross of the film and all sequels and spinoffs hmm. i don't know if that includes the hbo series or not i i would think that would be considered a sequel or spinoff so yeah, yeah probably um, but now, finally, there's an actual movie being made. Yeah. Um, so production took place from September 2007 to February 2008. Uh, it was shot in Vancouver as well as on sound stages and against green screens, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, there were 10 different visual effects companies involved with the production for all that good uh, CGI. Um, illustrator Dave Gibbons, whom you talked about, worked as an advisor on the film, but Alan Moore refused to have his name attached to any film adaptation that of his work. Um, <laughs> I don't know anything about Moore, but he seems like an he eccentric seems weirdo. seems <laughs> maybe... Don't come for me, Alan Moore fans. <laughs> he seems just at first blush from the things I've learned about him here. He seems maybe a little insufferable. Yeah, I get that vibe. He definitely, he's, um, he's a very talented person, but he definitely strikes me as a yeah. little bit like, oof. And I, I, and I didn't, I know you said at the beginning of the episode, we were going to have people mad that we didn't cover Alan Moore. Um, <laughs> Instead of, yeah, Zach's I, I wanted, the primary reason was that I wanted something short. We also may or may not have something coming down the line later this year. Year, mm. also with alan moore there you go. related what so a tease. what a tease 
So you can look forward to that, Alan Moore stands. Um, anyway, Moore has stated that he has no interest in seeing Snyder's adaptation. He told Entertainment Weekly in 2008, quote, There are things that we did with Watchmen that could only work in a comic and were indeed designed to show off things that other media can't. I mean, I'll agree with that, at least so far. There are definitely elements of stuff in the in in, in the graphic novel that I that you're like, yeah, I don't think you could do this <laughs> in a film. It would just be very difficult. Like some of the way the narrative jumps around and not even the narrative jumps around, but like the way they interweave. It's so hard to describe, but in particular, there's one thing is in the chapter or the, the issue I was just reading today of like this, this character who's reading a comic book within the universe. And we're cutting between the character reading the comic book is being talked to by another character in the world of Watchmen. But then we're also jumping into the world of the comic book. The character, the kid is reading mm. and it's, and, and, and it's the, 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 the action within the comic book that he's reading kind of mirrors some of what is happening in a yeah. separate storyline that is also happening at the same time with like Rorschach. It's, very interesting. I don't know if you could even remotely yeah. begin to do it in a I, movie. I will say, I, I am glad that you're reading this one, because I, I just have always struggled to read comics. I it just some It doesn't work well with my brain, I think. Mm. I just struggle with knowing where to look and, like, how to follow. And, like, I like I understand that there's a flow to it, that I there's, like, a system. I think you wouldn't have as much issues with this. But I have just always struggled with, like, following the flow of, like, a comic graphic novel format. Yeah, and that's fair. I, I will say I don't think you would have much issue with this. Sometimes you, it's a little confusing, the layers and knowing, like, when or where we are, like, yeah. in the story. But in terms of the flow and stuff, I think it's one of the things that's, I, I again say re reiterating I am not a graphic novel reader so like I don't have the experience of like knowing quote unquote how to read mm -hmm. comics or graphic novels but I find this very intuitive and I think part of that might be the the, the nine yeah. grid format thing and stuff um, and the way the text is laid out makes a lot of sense to me it's not confusing in a way that sometimes like the speech bubbles and stuff of like who's saying what you know because that's yeah, occasionally yeah. an issue like which ones do I I have not had that issue yet um, I found it very intuitive overall. So I do think you would have had an okay time read, like at least like in theory reading this because it's not, I, I find it very intuitive um, in a way that I was worried it might not be. Again, it it's, doesn't mean it's not complicated and there's like not, there's tons of stuff, interesting layers and stuff going on, but I do, it is pretty intuitive to read. I have a few casting notes, um, obviously, because this was attempted at so many studios. We've got a lot of different uh, different things going on. Um, so in the movie that we got, Malin Ackerman was cast as Silk Spectre II. Yeah, Lori. Yeah. Um, in earlier attempts to make the film, Hilary Swank, Natalie Portman, Rachel Weisz, Jennifer Connelly, and Jessica Alba were all considered for that part. Just let's round up all the brunettes in <laughs> Hollywood. Bring me all the brunettes. All the brunettes that were popular in the early 2000s. <laughs> round them up. Um, Billy Crudup plays Dr. Manhattan, mm -hmm. um, but his CGI body... John Osterman. Um, ...was based on fitness model and actor Greg Plitt. Keanu Reeves was also offered this role. But he passed on it. <laughs> that would have been incredible. I would have paid <laughs> so much money to see uh, Dr. Manhattan played by Keanu Reeves. 
That I, I can see why somebody thought that was a good idea. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would have been, but I can see the reasoning behind it, I feel like. <laughs> um, Snyder initially wanted Jude Law for the part of Ozymandias. Uh, Tom Cruise also expressed interest in that role. Do you know if that's how that's pronounced or is that just a guess? Because I've always Ozymandias. pronounced it Ozymandias. Like I put I thought, the emphasis on the M-A-N part. Ozymandias. I don't know. I was just wondering. I didn't uh, know if you knew. I mean, like, I think that's how it's pronounced. Because I, I, I thought it might be something from... Because isn't Ozymandias like a... Something like a name yeah, from something it's, like um, literature or something or what is that from? It's from something. Oh, it's Percy by Shelley. Um, it's Percy Shelley poem. Oh. Um, I'm that's like that's the and I don't remember how they say it in the movie. Is that the look upon your works, ye mighty in despair? When... <laughs> I don't know. I should know this. Yes, it is. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Mm. Um, hang on. Oh, I think that is that because I'm pretty sure that line is in the graphic novel or at least in the movie, maybe. I think that's in. I think yeah. it's in there. <laughs> I think that's why his name is Ozymandias. That. See, that's kind of how I've said it, Ozymandias, but I don't know. I do like Ozymandias. It sounds cooler. I feel like I have like a very distinct memory of a teacher pronouncing it Ozymandias. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. And as we know, teachers are always <laughs> correct about pronunciation. Okay, well, when it's a literature professor, like, I feel like I get a pass for putting my trust in that. No, I, I understand um, why you, yeah. Anyway, that role ended up going to Matthew Good. Mm -hmm. uh, Jackie Earl Haley, who plays Rorschach, was the only cast member who had read the comic, uh, and he actively campaigned for the role. His agent came up with the idea that they should do a shoestring budget audition tape of Haley wearing his own, quote, little cheesy Halloween Rorschach outfit. Um, after viewing the tape, Snyder cast Haley in the role, saying, quote, very low tech, but awesomely acted. Clearly, there was no other Rorschach. Interesting. I, I, I mean, I, you know, look. <laughs> I'm not saying uh, Rorschach is a very interesting character, but he's also a fucking Nazi. So I do, it's just a little weird to me to be like, I really want to play this character. I don't know. Again, he's a very interesting character. Um, he's a terrible person. He's a fucking fashion. Like he's. I don't. I don't know anything yeah. about that other than other than blotch face, facey face. Yeah, man. I, I will don't know say that I think him. I think that I'm looking at this through 2022 lens of having a better understanding of media and stuff. Like I don't think I would have got that impression had I read this when I was 20. Yeah, I would be like, he's just a badass. Like he's mm -hmm. a cool guy who like says sweet one-liners and mm -hmm. talks about how the world's infested with filth and he like breaks people's arms and stuff like he just seems like a cool like i get like if you're not really thinking about yeah. what his character is but the book literally goes out of its way to be like hey this guy's like it's like a fucking he's a nazi like <laughs> i don't know it's just weird yeah um so the film wasn't a flop exactly but it wasn't a stunning success either uh, it grossed 185.3 i put million there but i feel like i meant billion no, you no, meant million. I meant million. Yeah. Hundred uh against a budget of 138 million. Uh in its opening weekend, it had the biggest number of screenings for an R-rated film, breaking the previous record held by The Matrix Reloaded, as well as being the highest opening weekend of any Alan Moore adaptation. However, 
Attendance significantly dropped following its first week at the box office. Um, it was a 67.7 overall decrease um, in ticket sales um, at the time of its release. Uh, one of the highest for a major comic book film. I will say it's one of those things where, and it makes perfect sense to me that it would drop off severely and keep dropping. It's it's if you don't know what this is yeah. going in, and I don't I haven't I'll, I'll, when I edit this prequel, I'll, I'll, I'll watch the trailer because I'll put it in the episode. I don't remember what the trailers looked like, but if you're going into this coming off of Iron Man or whatever, and this is how I remember thinking this at the time, you know, oh, I'm going to get a Spider-Man, X-Men, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a comic book. It's a super. If you don't know anything about Watchmen, you would be like general audiences would be like, what the fuck <clears throat> is this? This is. Yeah. You know, um, like it's not remotely what you want or expect going into a superhero movie. <laughs> so. Uh, so the film then continued to drop about 60% in almost every subsequent weekend, uh, leaving the top 10 in its fifth weekend and the top 20 in its seventh. Uh, Watchmen was the sixth highest grossing R-rated film of 2009 behind The Hangover, Inglorious Bastards, District 9, Paranormal Activity, and It's Complicated. At the North American box office, Watchmen currently sits in the lower half of the 34 films based on DC Comics, uh, narrowly ahead of 1997's Batman and Robin. Um, And it was the 31st highest grossing film of 2009. It was nominated for one award at the 2009 VES Awards, seven awards at the 36 Saturn Awards, and... 13 awards at the 2009 Scream Awards. The film was also pre-nominated for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, although it did not make the final shortlist. Critics were divided on the film. Uh, Patrick Colin of IGN Australia awarded it a perfect 10 out of 10 and said, quote, it's the Watchmen film you always wanted to see but never expected to get. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars and wrote, quote, it's a compelling visceral film, sound images and characters combined into a decidedly odd visual experience that evokes the feel of a graphic novel. Kyle Smith of the New York Post, comparing it to some of Stanley Kubrick's films, wrote, quote, director Zack Snyder's cerebral scintillating follow-up to 300 seems even to, to even a weary filmgoer's eye as fresh and magnificent in sound and vision as 2001. Wow. All right. That's, I, I feel like you're really, you're really building it up there, Kyle. Yeah, well, isn't the, <laughs> am I wrong? Is the New York Post not an absolute rag? <laughs> <laughs> Could be wrong. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that it was. In I just pick the reviews that are most interesting. Yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> I'm pre- yeah. New York Post is like a rag. That doesn't mean that they don't have a per- or didn't have a perfectly fine movie reviewer. But the the Post, I'm pretty sure, is like an, an absolute like. It's like one step above mm. like uh, the National Enquirer or whatever. But. Um, however, much like your opinions on the New York Post, not everyone was sold on this <laughs> film. Uh, Philip Kennicott of the Washington Post, for example, wrote, quote, Watchmen is a bore. It sinks under the weight of its reverence for the original. David Edelstein of New York Magazine agreed, saying, quote, they've made the most reverent adaptation of a graphic novel ever. But this kind of reverence kills what it seeks to preserve. The movie is embalmed. And Devin Gordon, writing for Newsweek, said, quote, that's the trouble with loyalty. Too little, and you alt- and you alienate your core fans. 
too much and you lose everyone and everything else. Interesting. Yeah, I'm. But I, I, that's interesting because I feel like, and, and pretty much all of the reviews, like the negative reviews that I looked at, were in this vein. And I, I think that's interesting because I feel like it dovetails with what you were saying about like Snyder in general, that yeah. he's very, very invested in a, like putting the comic book directly uh-huh. on the yes. screen. And obviously that doesn't work for everyone. And it also might not, I'd be interested to see, cause I, so just to kind of go back, I actually am really glad I watched this in theaters when it came out and have mm-hmm. not watched it since then. Cause I think it will make for an interesting experience now having read it and then going back to watch the movie again. Because I ha- I can tell already, one, I'm already, I'm enjoying reading the graphic novel more than I enjoyed watching the movie the first time, by far. Yeah. That being said, I did not go into Watchmen the first time I saw it knowing what it was or had any idea what it was even trying to do. I was like, it's a, we were, I was, I was, you know, it was like, <laughs> I was 20 and we were like in college and we're like, oh, let's go see the new yeah, the new superhero movie, movie like, whatever. Sure. And, and 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 I'm interested to see if the trailers kind of sold it. You know, if they tried mm-hmm. to do that thing where they're like, it's like a normal superhero movie. Um, and whereas I'm wondering if I would go, I'd be really interested to see your opinion on it, not having read the graphic novel and seeing it for the first time. I think we'll get a really interesting kind of combination of perspectives on it because I am very excited to watch it because again, halfway through the graphic novel, so far, it's a very. I mean. Spoilers, it's a very problematic graphic. Not, I mean, people already knew that. It's, you know, it was written in the 80s or whatever, but it's um, incredibly good. <laughs> like, it's mm-hmm. very compelling and very interesting. Um, and, and just, you can, I, again, without a big frame of reference for graphic novels as a whole, I can understand why this would be so highly regarded because it is just doing things with a graphic novel that I would never have, like, expected a graphic mm-hmm. novel to do, really, in terms of, like, how it plays with um and it's so funny i think the thing that kind of struck me of of people saying like it's unfilmable or but how could you make this a new movie it's wild to me because i'm like throughout so much of it again there are parts where i'm like i don't know how i would film this but so much of it i'm like this this reads like i'm watching a movie like mm-hmm. it, it just it's it's so visceral like that and that's one of the again why i think i'm sure one of the reasons it was so popular and well regarded is that you can like hear and just it, it's it's I'm reading a a, a a comic book, but it feels like I'm watching a TV show or a movie or something. Like, it just feels like watching prestige in the sense that, like, you can hear the pages and, like, you can, I can imagine the movement. It's it's just interesting. Um, like, it's, I, again, I totally get why it's, it's so highly regarded. Um, but I'm very interested to see how it translates. And I have a feeling I'm going to really like the movie this time. Uh, whereas I didn't really care that much. I didn't hate it the first time. I, just didn't, mm-hmm. I was like, eh, whatever. It's, it's kind of boring. Like I, it was like it was like fine, but kind of boring was my yeah. initial take the first time I saw it. I'm surprised that I did not get roped into seeing this one in the theaters when it came out. Yeah. Um, based on the person I was dating at the time. <laughs> um, but I actually do have a, an anecdote. I think this is funny about this movie. I have like a very vivid memory of watching the trailer for this movie in my freshman year dorm and my roommate at the time was like very very religious Mm. and the trailer uses that one muse song where they keep repeating like uh, you'll burn in hell you'll burn in hell and she got like 
really upset about it. Not like offended, but like existential crisis, right. like upset at the concept of like burning, burning in hell. hell. Oh, and I was man. like, I don't think they mean you. <laughs> like, I don't think they They're mean you personally. You. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, that's hilarious. And I am another small detail. I, I we talked earlier about Zack Snyder um, and being an interesting choice to adapt this. Be, and you know, everybody's talking about all the reviews talking about how faithful it was. I actually think, and 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 our discussion. Well, obviously, we'll get into this in the main episode. But our discussion about how like I'm not sure how much how deeply he thinks. You know, how deeply he delves into like thematically what the stories he's telling are saying. Um, and I actually think that that might be perfect for. Hmm this interesting in the sense that i think if somebody thought too much about what this story was trying to say they might try to like tweak slash enhance the mess like they might they might try to like massage the story into like a framework or into like a um a thematic framework that they think it's trying to say or mm -hmm. like that they think works better or <sighs> I actually think there might be something and we'll see. I obviously not having watched the movie. I think there might yeah. be something really compelling about having a director who's just super committed to putting this piece of work on screen as literally as possible. Uh, barring a, again, from what I've heard a very major change at the end that is like, actually kind of serves it better than somebody who might understand the story better than he did. So like, mm -hmm. I think actually you, you might be less that you might get a worse adaptation from somebody who understood the story more. Maybe. Yeah. That's interesting. Maybe. I don't know. Again, without having watched it yet, I, but I could see that being the case that, that because the story is so layered and nuanced and convoluted and it's saying so many things that it's somebody trying to figure out what it's saying and put it on screen with them, <laughs> like it, edit it in a way where it's, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Obviously yeah. there's a lot of speculation, but it's just, <laughs> I was, as I was thinking about it, I was like, actually Zack Snyder might be perfect for something like this because it's just like, here it is this weird thing. I'm not going to like, <laughs> I, I don't get it here. Maybe you will. I got to <laughs> I don't, know. I, just, I don't know. Why did I just visualize like a cat setting a dead mouse at your feet? Like here. I don't know why that was the visual that came into my actually, head. I think more 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 reasonably, but like a, a cat setting a, a, a drone that it caught out of midair <laughs> at your feet. I mean like I don't know what the fuck this is. But like maybe, but like, maybe, maybe you, you would maybe like it. Would. I liked it. I thought it was cool and I I, I wanted to get it for you here. <laughs> like I feel like the, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I understand what it is. Maybe you will. Here it is. I don't know. And again, I'm I'm probably short selling Zack Snyder a little bit. I don't want to. I don't mean to say that he didn't understand at all what the story was about. But again, um, just kind of my from the vibe I've gotten from the other movies of his that I've seen, it's just like maybe his slightly more surface level understanding of the story might actually benefit it. We'll see. We shall see. Oh boy, okay, as always, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Goodreads, any of those places. Give us, uh, you know, follow us, like us, subscribe to us, uh, interact. We love to hear your feedback and talk about it on these prequel episodes. Also, head over to, you know, iTunes, not iTunes, what is it called now? Apple Podcasts. 
um, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you can give us a review, leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. Also, if you head over to patreon.com slash this film is lit, you can support us there for a few bucks a month. Get access to stuff, including bonus content at the $5 and up level. And at the $15 and up level, you get your name read at the beginning of every prequel episode like I did earlier. But also, you get priority recommendation status, which is what this is. Who was this requested by? Oh, so this was a request, a request from Ben Wilcox. Ben um, ben is uh, not, currently not currently a patron. But was for quite a uh, what, Ben was a patron for a, a long time um, and had to uh, yep. drop a subscription um, and messaged us to ask if he could put in one last request. Yep. And I said, yes, of course. Yep. Um, ben is also currently in law school. Oh. Congratulations, go. Ben. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> Fantastic. But yes, uh, at $15 level, you get access to that priority recommendation where we'll, we'll, we'll take your recommendation and throw it as high in the list as we can. So do that katie where can people watch watchmen uh well you can check with your local library um i feel like good chance they'll have this one um or if you still have a local video rental store you can check with them mm-hmm. otherwise you can stream this with a subscription to hbo max um you can also do that through amazon prime and I'm, services uh, yeah. yeah wherever you can get i'm HBO. not entirely sure how that works it's hbo but... owns it so anywhere you can get hbo yeah. you can watch the movie i'm, I'm sure uh, you know if you have direct tv or whatever yeah sorry otherwise you can rent it for around three to four bucks through apple tv amazon youtube voodoo redbox direct tv AMC theaters on demand or Spectrum TV. Yeah, and if you have HBO through those, you might be able to just like yeah. on demand it basically, yeah. like without paying for it potentially. So, all right, we already talked about watching this, so we're not going to bore you with that again. But anyways, yeah, uh, come back in one week's time. We're talking about Watchmen. It's going to be a long episode, I can already tell. Yeah. <laughs> Until that time, <laughs> guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books, keep watching movies, and and keep keep being awesome. awesome.